0: Let's pray. God, help us to be aware of your presence with us this morning. Help us to be attentive to you, to your word, to your spirit, to your will, to your way, to your heart, and to one another. As we read from your word together, we ask that you would help us to receive what you would have for us. Give us ears that are good to hear and eyes that are good to see and hearts that are good soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. And so as you've heard, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday in the life of the church universal. You may or may not be familiar with Pentecost in a nutshell, the term Pentecost is a Greek word Pentecoste, which means 50th, and its history in Judaism is that after Passover, 50 days later, is this big festival called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Mirroring that is in the Christian calendar after Easter, uh, 50 days, seven weeks, inclusive of the Sundays on each end, and that brings us to Pentecost, uh, which is today, Uh, In the early church, the first Pentecost after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, something remarkable happens. We read about in the book of Acts, and we'll read about it in a moment. Uh, We'll read that in a moment. Uh, There is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people come to faith or come to trust in God for the first time. And so in some ways, uh, this has been called over church history the birthday of the church. Pentecost. And though uh, most Christians are not cognizant of, of, nor do they fully live in the rhythm of what's called the church year or the liturgical year or the liturgical calendar, I'm going to run through that real quickly and extend our sermon time a little bit more, just because we don't really talk about it. So this thing called the Christian Year that you may not uh, live in as much as you do the school year or the uh, summer calendar or other rhythms of our culture, begins in this season called Advent, which encapsulates the Old Testament and they're looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Advent awaiting the arrival. Then on Christmas Day, we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, and celebrate that for about two weeks in a season called Christmas. Then comes Epiphany after that, which celebrates the arrival of the Magi or the wise men, the baptism of Jesus, the Transfiguration Sunday. Then we get to Ash Wednesday, the season of Lent for six and a half weeks, Palm Sunday, Holy Thursday or Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter. Ascension Day, which was last Sunday, and today Pentecost, and then Trinity Sunday a little bit later on, All Saints Day, connected to what we know as Halloween in the fall, and then finally the last holiday of the church calendar or the Christian year is what's known as Christ the King Sunday, and it's the Sunday before Advent begins. So this year, November 24th, and then we start all over again, the Christian year. That's it in a nutshell. You know that in the first century were written four similar and unique accounts about the coming, the person, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Christ. We know these as the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of those four, Luke, wrote a second volume. And that second volume is what we know as the book of Acts. And Luke and Acts fit together perfectly. Where Luke ends his gospel, the book of Acts begins. They fit together perfectly. And that's where we're going to read from this morning. Starting in the second chapter of Acts, so right after Luke finishes. But really a continuation. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. When the day of Pentecost came, they, Jesus' disciples... We're all together in one place. And the they refers actually not so much to Jesus' 12 disciples as apostles, but that's the last word of chapter one of the book of Acts, apostles. And then Paul picks up here, or Luke picks up here in chapter two. And it's interesting that these 12 are not called their disciples which means students or followers or apprentices, as they always had been in the Gospels and in Luke's Gospel up to that point, but are here all of a sudden called apostles, which in Greek means ones who are sent. Ones who are sent. The disciples are now apostles. They had been students or apprentices, but now that Jesus has been crucified, risen, and ascended, they are all of a sudden called ones who are sent. This is important. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Recently, there was that rash of dozens and dozens, hundreds of tornadoes in middle America. And in some of those news accounts, I read where the people described their first tornado experience and said it was the loudest thing they had ever heard. What the disciples heard and experienced was also maybe the loudest thing they had ever heard, like a tornado coming through, and they were frightened. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And a few comments are worth making here at this point because that was a seminal event for the early church and one that really did change the course of history for them and for 3,000 people who come to faith that day and then over the course of time for literally billions of people. The apostles saw or they witnessed what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each and every one of them. And this tongues thing is significant for multiple reasons. The Greek word translated here as tongues is glossolia, and it can be translated into English in one of two ways. It has two meanings in Greek equally. One of its meanings is language. Its other meaning is a physical tongue, as in my mouth or your mouth. The translators all translate glossolia here as tongues rather than languages because the apostles see fire in the shape of tongues. Think about it for a moment. It would be impossible to translate here glossolia into languages because languages can't be seen. They don't have shape. And so the translators into English of the book of Acts in this verse here really have no choice but to translate into English that they saw tongues of fire. Are you with me on this? You can't choose language here for Glossalia because that's not what they saw. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated among them, coming down upon them. And next, what the, that the apostles saw tongues rather than noses or ears or eyes, is not simply random. We've always taken it for granted that they were tongues, but that was not random. That the fire that they saw was in the shape of tongues, specifically, was significant, and they would soon understand why. To get ahead of the story, what is about to happen will be dependent not on eyes or ears or noses as much as God empowering, guiding, leading, taking control of, and working through their tongues in very specific ways. And then finally, the very unusual reality that these tongues that seemed to rest upon each of them were of fire rather than other less dangerous elements or materials like water or ice or smoke or wood or gold or any number of other materials or elements, which the tongues could just as well have been made of, all of which would have been less alarming and much safer than fire. Imagine the apostles, all their hair catching on fire, which seemed possible at this point. But it is fire, and we have to ask why. So back in chapter three, verse 16 of Luke's gospel, which is just volume one of the book of Acts, John the Baptist, who prepared the way, prepared the way for God, prepared the way for Jesus, declared clearly I baptize you with water, which he did, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, just before Jesus' ascension, when he is taken up into heaven about 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus declared to his disciples these words that are largely assumed to be the thesis sentence for the whole book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are you with me on this? So now, verse 4. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire and separated and came uh, to rest on each of them. All of them at that moment were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Glossolia, there's the word again, as the Holy Spirit enabled them. The sound of a loud-blowing wind, and the Greek word translated here as wind, also means breath, is there If there is life involved here, there is the wind and the tongues of fire on each person and then the filling of the Spirit, and we don't know what that looked like or what that sounded like, but we do know immediately that all of them began to speak in other glossolia as the Spirit enabled them, in other glossolia. And while English translations translate the word glossolia here as tongues, it is clear from what follows that what is meant is languages. Verse five. Now that we're staying in Jerusalem for the feast of weeks, this massive gathering of Jews from all over the world, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when these God-fearing Jews heard the sound, a crowd, presumably the tornado, and then all of these languages, a crowd came together in bewilderment They didn't know what was going on because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking mere simple Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or languages. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And of course, we know what it means, don't we? Some, however, made fun of the apostles and said they've had too much wine. There's a lot of partying going on in Jerusalem this week. Ton of partying. It's 9 a.m. These guys must have had too much wine already. There was a huge festival. Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the known world had come together. It was a unique, rare, and wonderful opportunity for the wonders of God. In other words, the love of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus the Lord the cross of Messiah Jesus and the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Messiah Jesus to be declared to the nations without ever leaving Jerusalem. It was missions made incredibly easy by God. Language barriers erased people coming to believe in the grace of God in Jesus and trust in Jesus himself by the thousands without anyone having to raise support or write a letter or get vaccinations or do cultural training or liquidate one's assets and travel to foreign lands after learning a new language. All of that made unnecessary by this Pentecostal event. So we call Pentecost the birthday of the church. But what God was really doing was in one grand eruption, unveiling, revealing, proclaiming, announcing, declaring, making known to the nations the joy of his grace and the glory of his kingdom. Verse 14. When Peter stood up with the 11, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews... He's a Jew too. And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, our prophet Joel, Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. On who will God pour out his spirit? Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, mere servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy or speak my words. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, rescued, healed, everyone, And therein was this invitation to all people. Formerly an invitation limited to the Jews. And now an invitation to all people to believe and to receive the gift of God's grace and God's salvation and God's love and God's hope and God's goodness. We have tended to compartmentalize Jesus' life, Jesus' uh, crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection and then giving some attention to the wholly separate event of his ascension and then really a whole nother event, this Pentecost thing that Luke alone tells us about. But the Luke-Acts narrative suggests that these events should be understood together with this great eruption or because wind and breath and spirit are involved, this great exhale of God That John the Baptist foretold, and that Jesus then foretold completely changing history, and not just for the Jewish people, and not just for the church, but for the whole world. And in this little speech, there are about 20 speeches in the book of Acts, and this is the first one from Peter. And in this little speech, the first, who's doing the talking? It's Peter who only several weeks before this event, remember this, only several weeks before this event, this same Peter denies to a servant girl even ever having known Jesus. And by what is going on in his life and these tongues of fire and this spirit and this noise and this eruption, he is now speaking to hundreds, no thousands of friendly and not so friendly people in the streets of Jerusalem, declaring and proclaiming the mighty works of God, which are most evidently the crucifixion of the God-man and his being alive again three days later. Made possible, making possible what Peter invites them to which was believing repentance, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins, so that they too might also, an experience, because the Holy Spirit is an experience, life and grace and peace and joy and hope. Something powerful and transformative had happened to Peter and in Peter, and God seems from the text to want that for all people. While the Pentecost eruption was not normative, what happens in the life of God's people seems to be normative. Of course, not all of us want that for ourselves. Is it true? Not all Christians, not all church people are interested in what God wants to do in and through us. We like to be in control. I love, I love to be in control. What was happening there in Jerusalem on that Pentecost seemed out of control, or at least out of human control. And some of us us get scared away from this whole Pentecost event and idea and realm because we are tentative, if not afraid, if not apprehensive about this whole speaking in tongues thing. But let me be crystal clear. What is commonly known today as speaking in tongues, which Pentecostals do, is a completely different thing than what we've just read about in the second chapter of Acts. Say that to the person next to you. It's a completely different thing. The phenomenon or the practice That the Apostle Paul encountered in the church in Corinth, which is commonly today known as speaking in tongues, was the voluntary, in other words, by their choice, speaking indecipherable sounds, not known foreign languages as we see here. In Corinth, speaking in tongues was something that Christians practiced, some Christians, by their own choice and under their own control as a part of their prayer and worship, and which Paul did not necessarily encourage. In contrast, later in verse 28 of chapter 2 of Acts, Peter explains that God's intent and desire for all people is to receive, all people, receive the Holy Spirit. And what or who is the Holy Spirit? The church has always talked a lot about God the Father. The church has always talked about Jesus, Son of God, God's Son, Son God. But what about the Holy Spirit? Christians believe in one God in three persons, not personas, not personalities, but it's a Greek and then Latin word that's different than that and really means substance, As uh, the church has historically believed in God as three persons, while distinct, all are one. And we see this triune God throughout Scripture, though maybe more clearly in the New Testament. And we know God as good Father, and we know God as Jesus, but what about God the Spirit, the Spirit of God? Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit as comforter, as Sharon alluded to earlier, as guide, as advocate, As one who convicts us of our sin, we are familiar with the gifts of the Spirit. We are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. But the renowned New Testament scholar Gordon Fee called the Holy Spirit in a most comprehensive way God's empowering presence. Say that to someone next to you. God's empowering presence and we can see how that description fits what we have read at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus said, you will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And God had been with his people in the Old Testament in presence, through the tabernacle, through the fire, in a variety of different ways. And then there was this period of silence and then Jesus, God incarnate, shows up and then Jesus goes away and God's people are left without his presence and in some ways his power until this Pentecost when we see the eruption of God's empowering presence. And there are many examples Of how this presence, spirit, manifests itself, himself, throughout the New Testament. But they almost all have to do with what scholars call agency. The Holy Spirit doesn't just reside, but empowers, acts, leads people to do a variety of different things. All sorts of different things that are the ministry to which God calls His people in and through Jesus. I was in a meeting on Tuesday with, uh, and one of the elders in the meeting said, "We cannot love people without the presence and power of Jesus." How true that is! The Holy Spirit empowers us to love people in divine ways. But in this passage of Scripture, and maybe throughout the whole New Testament the one thing the Holy Spirit most empowers people to do is not to sing and not to pray and not to have some ecstatic language, but rather to speak God's Word, the mighty acts of God, boldly and with joy and with power and effectively. Are you with me? But so many Christians opt out of the empowered witnessing part of of who God is toward us and who God is with us and in us, and so do not relate fully to the triune God or participate in that once and for all great eruption of God. We say the Apostles' Creed here together once a month. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We say we believe in a triune God, but we function not as Trinitarians, but as Binitarians. This is not an adequate analogy, of course, to describe the triune God or the doctrine of the Trinity, but it is a little bit like buying a super fast car and never filling it with gas. Leather seats, plush interior, lots of power under the hood, looks really good. Screen up here, lots of bells and whistles, turbocharged, computer stuff, no gas in the tank. And while there's a suggestion later in the book of Acts that a person can have Jesus but not the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul continually asserts that the person who is in Christ also always has God's Spirit. Again, the Scriptures do not speak of three separate gods, but three in one, together, united, inseparable And yet we read in Acts chapter 2 of people who were in Christ and who were following Jesus having a being filled with the Holy Spirit experience which we must understand to be filled not from a state of complete emptiness but from a state of not completely full as one's mechanic may top off the fluids in one's car or as a waiter at a restaurant may fill a not completely full glass of water. What seems to be happening here with the disciples who are in Christ, apostles, who already have God's Spirit in one sense, are being filled up, not from emptiness, but being replenished with God's Spirit to the point of fullness. We read numerous times going forward in the book of Acts of Peter and later Paul and then all of the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit. God wants all of us to be filled with his spirit. And the spirit, which is God's empowering presence, is not about an annual holiday of the church, but rather igniting our tongues to speak clear and winsome words about the love of God in Jesus to those who have either never heard or never understood. Are you with me on this still? There is nothing in the Bible that suggests that God's desire or intention is for all people to speak Unintelligible sounds. But there is much in the scriptures that suggests that God's desire and his intention for his people is that they, we, be filled with his spirit, and that being filled with his spirit, we boldly tell of God's mighty works. So the message of Acts 2, which is always read on Pentecost, is if you have never understood who Jesus was and is and what God has done for the world and for you, through Jesus' life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Peter and the scriptures call you to recognize him as Lord, to repent, to believe, to turn to him. And if you are already in Christ, if you trust the Lord, if you're seeking to follow Jesus, if you are his disciple, the message of Acts 2 is that God wants to fill you with his spirit, so that you, we may be His witnesses—people who tell what we have seen and experienced in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, into in your home, in your household, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, in your country, throughout the whole world—and so participate in the great exhale, the great eruption of God through his spirit 2,000 years ago on Pentecost that very much continues today. But of course, as I read and try to understand this passage, this, all of this really was primarily an act of God, not man. And so I ask myself, is there a role for me? Is there a role for us in this? And in some ways it's unclear, but if there is, and such seems likely, we would do well to do as Jesus' disciples, apostles did, which was to wait, to watch, to listen, to pray, and to be expectant that God who is in control will do, will send, will make happen what he promised and what he delivers. And the result of that, the action that follows that in our lives will be like Peter at every opportunity with God's empowering presence to boldly proclaim with great joy the mighty works of God in Jesus to all those around, to all those around us. This, according to Acts 2, is what the Holy Spirit is all about and the one who desires, us, desires to fill us with his empowering presence. And so... May I suggest to us, to you, to myself, that we begin each day, tomorrow, the next day, and for the rest of our lives with some sort of simple prayer that goes like this. Gracious and loving God, I am available. I am waiting, I am watching, I am here. Send your Holy Spirit Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your presence and your power. I am ready. Amen. Do you think you can do that? Next Sunday morning, we will pray something like this over the young people and their leaders who will head to Los Angeles for our annual youth mission trip. May this be our prayer for ourselves each day as well. In the words of Augustine, without the Spirit we can neither love God nor keep His commands. Lloyd Ogilvie wrote, It is impossible to live the Christian life without the indwelling Spirit. And William Willimon has written, to those those in the church today who regard the spirit as an exotic phenomenon of mainly interior and purely personal significance, the story of the spirit's descent at Pentecost offers a rebuke. Luke goes to great pains to insist that this outpouring of the spirit is anything but interior, private, personal. Everything is by wind and fire, loud talk, buzzing, confusion, and public debate. The Spirit is the power which enables the church to go public with its good news, to attract a crowd, and to have something to say worth hearing. A new wind is set loose upon the earth, provoking a storm of wrath and confusion for some, but a breath of hope and empowerment for others." May this be so with us and among us to the glory of God. Let's pray. We have varying degrees of familiarity with your spirit, with Holy Spirit, with pneuma, wind, breath, your presence, God. We have varying degrees of experience with your power among us, in us, having filled us. Together as a body and individuals, we say, good, loving, and gracious God, we are available. Help us to be available to you, to your presence, to your power. Fill us with your Spirit, and through your leading and your power, may we, like Peter, be vessels of your message, your gospel, your grace, your hope. May your kingdom come. Amen.